0: We the plates and lift the weights And we are mates, and weights are great And as of plate, we pontificate about the weights
1: And make a podcast! Sumo is cheating! This is Weekly Weights with Alex and Will.
0: Welcome to Weekly Weights, this is episode 119, I'm Alex Hayes, with me is Will. Hi. And today we're going to do a little bit of a reflection of 2020.
1: Yeah, we're calling it early. Um, I think everybody would probably like to pull up stumps on 2020 at this point. So we're, as always, trailblazing. We're going to do it first. We figured it's it's mid-November, and that's that's close enough.
0: Well, like, who really does anything productive in December?
1: Not me. Well, so, certainly not me. Uh, how often do you do anything productive year-round? <laughs> yeah, it's very fair. Um, it's like no, two, week, two
0: weeks of January, and then I'm done.
1: Well, that's the th- like. I don't know because we, ha- we actually have a decent international listenership which boggles the mind because you'd think that in the whole world there'd be a lot better things to listen to yeah, than how us. How do we
0: have any listeners?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, mum still plugs away. She checks the episode titles and she's like, if it doesn't sound sciencey, i I'm right in there. So she might listen to this one because um, she'll want to know what's been going on for the year because obviously I haven't spoken to her. Um, <laughs> but but for people who are who are not from Australia... I'm not sure whether it's the same for you. We call the, the kind of summer break silly season because everybody just goes on leave and then suddenly it's Christmas and then suddenly it's New Year's Eve. And in Australia, we have Australia Day, January 26th, um, which is controversial, but but end of January. And so basically between near the start of December when people start really winding down into Christmas and the end of January, not a lot goes on. And I know if you're from the States, it's, it's actually Thanksgiving today. Is it today or... Tomorrow it's Thanksgiving about now, so you guys probably have a bit of a silly season. But for us, that's also combined with often you know the best weather of the year. We'll take some bushfires. Like it's just not a very productive time. So we figured it's it's fine. We'll just call 2020 officially over, um, and we'll talk about maybe 2021 as it's just, of now.
0: It's just pray it doesn't get any worse.
1: Yeah. Well, when I write the date, I'm gonna I'm gonna call it like negative one, and you know, of 2021 instead of like 11 of 2020. If you know what I mean for the month sure was that confusing in the way i worded it sort of sort of well (laughs) well we're talking about 2020 the year in review and we wanted to break it down into some lessons that we've learned in our coaching practice some lessons we've learned in our training practice then we got one or two miscellaneous life lessons because as you as you sort of teeter around the sun you pick up some wisdom on the way alex what were what was your first coaching lesson that you learned
0: so I have a few little categories. So we'll start with um, how I communicate with my clients. Okay. So the, the thing that I've kind of started to veer towards has been sort of giving my clients more time between sessions before I communicate with them. And I, this is something that we spoke about with Bryce um, and sort of that conversation that we had with Bryce, so I think it was around the end of April, Yeah. Um, it mm-hmm. was to, towards the start of COVID. I still wasn't going to your house we did it from zoom in our own houses so it must have been around April um, and he spoke about how you know he does his check-ins weekly he doesn't review his training until the end of each week and then you know waits till then f- for his clients to formulate their own opinions of their training before he then gives them communi- uh, gives them communication back and that's sort of something that I've been sort of thinking about and I started to try it out with a few clients who sort of seem to need less feedback than others and then I've sort of started to incorporate it with everyone and it's exactly like what he was talking about with how it allows them a chance to reflect upon their own trading, how their immediate emotional response to the session doesn't dictate the quote-unquote success of the session and then when you actually zoom out and look at it from sort of a weekly context and compare it to the previous week or you you don't look at each set as an individual set, you look at the session as a session, Um, you actually start to think about your training a little bit differently.
1: Do you think, so for people who aren't working with a coach or for coaches who aren't thinking about applying this, do you think there's a way that you can sort of get that, like that useful zoomed out perspective without having to do a weekly check-in for someone else?
0: Mm, That's a good question. What do you think?
1: I certainly think you can. Um, I think when I was, um, both before I was being coached and when I first started being coached, I was really preoccupied with powerlifting. So I would think about it all the time, like within and between my training sessions. And, you know, when I'd be about to go to bed at night, I'd be thinking about the session the next day and so on. But I think that now, like as an adult, were I to be were I to be sort of like self-coaching, I would still probably want to put some time aside at the end of each training week where I would look back and maybe I'd watch my footage again or like look at the notes I'd written in my sessions and say good week, bad week, what changes need to happen and so on and just, just use that time to consolidate my thoughts a bit. I think the risk of not doing any reflection, so like were I self coached as opposed to coached by Bryce, you know, I could just as easily just do my sessions, make decisions in the moment, walk out, and not think about it. I think that that would that would cost me something, but I also think that I would benefit from having a little bit more distance than just assessing things on a day by day basis. so I still do think putting that time aside, maybe rewatching some of your footage, maybe setting some targets for the next week, and maybe saying like what could I do better would be useful for almost anyone.
0: Yeah, and that is something that I do in my own training with JP. I'll sort of, at the end of each session, give a little bit of a session recap. Here's what I think went well. Here's what I think didn't go well. Here's what I think we should do next week. And then at the end of the week, I'll give an even broader uh, weekly weekly review.
1: With your clients, do you find there are any who who still do benefit from those more frequent touch points with you?
0: Uh, I Yeah, definitely. And... I think it also depends on a lift-by-lift basis. So for lifters who aren't confident with one lift, they might want sort of that feedback at the end of the session or even during the session, which oftentimes isn't uh, possible. But um, I find that when you actually give them some autonomy to make decisions on their own or to just even just give them some, some space to sort of either cool them down if they're feeling like the session isn't going well Or the other way around, if they think the session's going great, it kind of brings it back to the midline if they're allowed to just stew in their own thoughts.
1: Yeah, for sure. This was like what you're talking about now is actually very close to my first point, which was just talking about like in my coaching service, I really restructured my delivery methods this year as well. And one of the things was that I moved to a weekly check-in. At first, I added it as an additional thing. And then I realized as time was going by that lots of people were consolidating almost all their communication to that anyway, And it did make more sense from like a time management perspective and from like a quality of conversation perspective to put those things together. Um, And what I did with most of my clients is sort of, or in fact, all my clients is say like, let's put most of your thoughts in that weekly check-in because you get all the benefits that we've just spoken about. But whether there are emergencies or like, you know, a spot fire that we want to put out, whether it's like something's gone really wrong in a training session or something unexpected's happened. Like one of my lifters, I was just telling Alex has written to me, because she thinks she might have fractured a rib um, and she's had to go get an x-ray. Like that's obviously something that needs some immediate attention. Then you can reach out to me. And I think even asking people to make the choice um, to say like, is this something that I'm actually capable of dealing with on my own? Or do I need my coach for this is handy? Because the more often people start like solving their own own problems, the more confident they get. Um, And here and there, they'll do something where my feedback to them will be, hey, that was an okay solution, but here's a better one. Or like, or very rarely that was a bad decision. But, you know, here and there, I'll say that. But more often than not, I start saying, hey, that was a really good decision. Well done. Or like they asked me questions to figure out how to solve it next time and they develop some self-efficacy in that. And then still knowing that you have the safety net of a coach and that they can reach out to me at any time and get a response reasonably quickly is, I think, good. Mm. Um,
0: yeah, and the other thing with communication that I've done um, that falls in the same category for me is scheduling calls with clients and whether that's monthly or every six weeks or every two weeks, you know, people will want to communicate, you know, at different time intervals and that's perfectly up to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but giving them the option to, you know, have a FaceTime chat with them, see their face and have a chat with them about how things are going, what are they what they're enjoying doing, all that kind of stuff, I think it really helps with just creating a good relationship with clients.
1: Yeah, it's instead of the instead of the focus being on like the frequency of conversation, which it very much used to be for me. it's become much more about like the quality of conversation of Mm. feeling like I know each person that I'm talking to and my feedback video to them might be five minutes some weeks like it might be even less occasionally it's 10 or 12 or you know god forbid longer but like either way it should be a quality conversation where it's like the things that they've said they feel heard there's some response to the things that's going on in their life like there's actually a personal connection yeah and I think we mistake frequency of communication for for like depth of communication you know it's It's analogous to like, if you're in a romantic relationship with somebody and you text them every day, but your texts are just like, you flick them a meme and then like, you know, you like the message or something. That's not a very deep or meaningful conversation. Whereas when you sit across the table at dinner and...
0: But it is a good conversation.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, personally, that's all I want. But But yeah, we're pro
0: memes here at, at
1: Weekly Weights. Absolutely. But you know, when you sit across a table from somebody and talk about your hopes and dreams or lack thereof then, you know, you develop a bit of a deeper bond and understanding, right? And the same is true with your clients.
0: Yeah, and that's something that that I've definitely got from both of my coaches. Um, I do FaceTimes pretty regularly with Jacob and pretty regularly with JP. And most of the time, you know, probably 50-50% of each of those conversations is about training. And 50-50 is just talking shit and just like building a relationship and having a good time. And not once have I left a conversation with either of them or with any of my clients and thought, I feel worse off for having that conversation.
1: Yeah. And I think um, this is, again, something that Bryce said on the podcast. At some stage, you kind of get a little bit past telling your athletes how to lift, right? Like Mm. particularly, you know, for yourself talking to like Jacob and JP, you coach however many powerlifters yourself now. You've been doing it for long enough. Like you've said on the podcast, your technique's not going to change tomorrow in how you squat bench and deadlift so probably should but yeah yeah yeah, i mean for better or for worse you're stuck right um but like you know the conversation can't entirely be fixated on that and i think there's something if i say to somebody hey send me your squats immediately after your session so i can critique your technique it's like i'm railroading myself into just providing a technical service whereas when i say hey send me a summary of your training week how you're feeling about it like some stuff about your motivation the rest of your life and things i'm suddenly encompassing a far greater role and it means that where I do have clients where I have to play their videos, pause at certain points and say, this is what you're doing, this is what I want you to do, and so on, I can. But for other people, I can literally just make my face full screen and just talk to them, the person, and chat about that. And again, I think it actually lets you better tailor your services to do that. So it like fosters reflection on the athlete's end, which I think is really good. And you get, as a coach, to do something a bit more expansive and maybe more useful. Hey?
0: Mm, and then the longer then the longer you coach someone, like Bryce said, the less you're going to talk about those little Finicky technique things, the more you're going to talk about, like, you know, setting these goals for this block or setting, you know, this goal for next year or when's your next competition going to be or what's the goal going to be yeah. versus, like, you know, tighten up your upper back. You're not doing this, you're not doing that. Because, you know, if you've been coaching someone for two years, it's probably pretty likely that you've told them the same technique things 40,000 times.
1: Yeah, like, fix your bench, you stupid shit ass. Yeah, what are you doing? Yeah, I cop that a few times from you. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> what's 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 next on the agenda for you Coach um
0: this is similar to another one that you had uh but it's so obviously the communication has become less frequent but of a higher quality where my program updates have become more frequent um and often sort Lower of
1: quality it's <laughs> just to balance things more out.
0: frequent and equal of equal quality yeah. um but yeah i've i've gone to sort of generally speaking, one to three week blocks for most people. And um, I found that to be really, really useful. Um, it allows us to pull back if things aren't going well and sort of change course or it allows us to continue a block as long as it's working. Yeah. Um, and it also lets us focus on the week or the two weeks at hand without sort of zooming forward and looking to the last week and either A, getting excited or B, getting anxious and, you know, having negative thoughts running around your head
1: yeah I have mixed feelings on this because whilst I have been writing shorter blocks so one thing that I did do this year is um, is I worked with or, or I hired a guy called Quinn Higgs um, to help build a new spreadsheet system that basically enables me to write and manage all my athletes programs from one hub it's been really really useful um, and he does do, I think he does do it as well for other people if you just contact him on, um, on Instagram but one thing that building that system enabled me to do was extend blocks by a week at a time or like chop a week off a block if I had to and so on. Um, and so it makes it makes just making those week at a time decisions very easy and programming them extremely easy and fast on my end. But I've also always found for myself and for a lot of other people that there is some value in in having a few weeks or so ahead of you where you say like, this is the goal that I'm running up towards and sort of having an idea that like, this is likely to be the end of the road for me, um, you know, in a block. So saying like, over four weeks, I want to work to a new five rep PB on my squat, whatever it happens to be. And then in week one, you can look ahead and say, well, this is where I want to land in week four, and this is the road to get there. And I think within that, being able to frequently touch base and make changes to the plan and say, is this realistic? Are we going to shoot past there? Is great. And I think being able to say towards the end of those four weeks, hey, maybe we could push another week or two out here. We're doing good. Or maybe we could terminate this early. Like, I think those things are sensible. But I still do like planning with that not very long-term gaze, but but just long-term enough gaze. And the other thing that I think of when you say that is something, I, I can't remember exactly where I heard Mike DeSheris say it, but um, but he said it and it really stuck with me, which is that um, oftentimes it's easy as a coach to kind of just blink too early with your athlete's training. Like, they'll send you a week of training and you'll say, you know, whatever, like that squat set of five was really good, but you're just not sure if if you add five kilos next week, they'll be able to eke out that bit of progression. And I think as coaches, because we err towards conservatism, we're inclined to at that point say, righto, chop off the block. Um, And I think that when we too frequently insert ourselves in the overall planning process, we sometimes make too many decisions and sometimes ones that are limiting. Whereas when we say, you know, I've written four or five weeks of training, You've almost made a pseudo commitment to completing those four or five weeks of training, and sometimes people do exceed your expectations and and you know make a week's worth of progress that they wouldn't have made. Where had you been asked to make the decision, you would have withdrawn the opportunity. And so again, sometimes I think it's worth having something written on paper first, and then adjusting within that rather than saying I'm just going to add to this piece of paper on a weekly basis because you just you make too many decisions, and the more decisions you make, the more mistakes you make.
0: Yeah, see, I, I completely agree with. Absolutely everything that you've just said and the way that I kind of get around that is sort of tell the client, hey, we're going to run this layout for, you know, however many weeks and I'll give them a range of weeks. Um, And, you know, if it's going really well, we'll continue pushing it to the top end of that range of the weeks. Mm. Um, And like you said, if you have a question mark over whether someone's going to be able to continue for another week, that's one of those meaningful conversations you have with the client. Do you think you can get through another week of progression? If they come back with you to you and say, "Oh, I'm, you know, I'm feeling pretty buggered. Like, you know, I'd like an intro week or a deload and then we can start a new phase." Then that they making the decision for them. Mm. Whereas if they are someone who is like, "You know what? Like, let's give it a crack and go for it." That's going to kind of give them that mental energy and that little bit of like a bit of fire in the belly to actually go for it. Yeah, and then that, that way you're true. kind of putting the putting the ball in their court.
1: Yeah, and something, like, I think that that's actually really true. And um, something that I've realized as you were talking is I've also begun delineating, and I say this when I talk to my athletes, between blocks that are, like, exploratory and blocks where we're doing something where we pretty much know what we're going to get back from it. So one of my lifters, Katsu, um, give or take a couple of Ch- hamstring Chicken strength. car. <laughs> a chicken car. Um, his name is Katsu Suzuki, um, which is very Japanese. And anyway, point is... <clears throat> um, other than a couple of hamstring strains that he picked up because he kept trying to play social sport instead of being just a powerlifter, um, he's run a really similar block for the last few blocks in a row. And so pretty predictably, I know that he'll get four-ish weeks of progression and then he'll need a deload. And he's a pretty big guy and he's a pretty strong guy, so his deloads need to be pretty big. And like we just we just have a vague idea of how he's going to respond to a given block of training. He's just coming to the end of one now and we're rewriting a pretty similar block to do pretty similar things. So for him that's not a very exploratory block of training. We've come across a recipe that's mostly doing okay. But for other lifters and particularly people who I'm just starting with, we are in the process of trying to establish you know what training doses work, how long can we push a given training block for, you know, when do we start to get ideas of, you know, of accumulating fatigue for you and how much fatigue can you accumulate within a week and still recover and come back. And so one of my lifters who's new, um Jack from South Australia, um, she she we did write a three-week block, which she did really well with, and so we added a fourth week, which she did really well with, and we added a fifth week, and then South Australia went into a six-day lockdown, so we had to terminate the block there. But we've basically restarted a similar block, knowing that she can get at least four weeks of progression out with that layout, and we're going to try and push for a fifth and a sixth probably this time as well. And again, that's a discussion I've had with her. But that block is more exploratory in nature because we're playing a little bit more with training variables. We're just trying to get the balance right. And so in that instance, I'm much more open to a lot more flexibility in planning. And because I did have a similar point, like Alex said, um, something that I've realized with with my coaching is like, I don't need a huge amount of top-down planning for a lot of the time, so long as we have some type of idea of where we're trying to go with training. But at certain times, you do need to impose a lot more. And when somebody is, like, coming into a competition or something, obviously I need to be much more strict with, you know, how long are we are going to push a certain stimulus for, when are we going to take our deloads, and, you know, just broadly how long a block's going to be. But when we are in more of these off-season building periods where we're saying, hey, you know, a comp is either not on the horizon in the short term or not on the horizon at all, then obviously you have a lot of room to play and so you want to put the ball in the athlete's court and say, you know, like, how do you feel this ship is travelling right now?
0: mm yeah i completely agree when you have those time constraints you kind of need something a little bit more more rigid with your planning yeah um and when you don't you can kind of just see where it takes you yeah 100 percent. and if six week block turns into 11 weeks then so be it
1: i also think i'm spitballing i haven't thought this thought through fully so this could be terrible or great but also like when you when you're in an off-season block say you're running fives or whatever somebody's going really well there's very little marginal cost to shooting one week too long, right? Like what happens? Oh, they're a little bit more fatigued, they need a deload, whatever. But there's plenty of marginal benefit. Potentially they hit a new PB, develop some confidence, they set their ceiling higher. Like it can perpetuate further development down the track as long as you don't kill them. So that's great. Mm-hmm. When you're leading into a comp, there's not much marginal cost to terminating things a tiny bit early. You know, if you're if somebody's doing whatever, like moderate to heavy top singles that are going to end a week out from comp because you're taking them into some type of a taper if they're still building momentum two weeks out that's just great like your taper might need to be a bit less less aggressive but like every indication is they're doing really good so perfect because you just want them to lift well on comp day but obviously saying oh man their singles at eight keep flying like I'm going to really push their single at eight four, four days out from comp might yield you absolutely nothing more but could potentially tank them so at that point conservatism just makes sense no matter what yep um I have a coaching lesson. Yep. Um, Something that I've realized recently is that RPE is bullshit. And if you use RPE as an excuse to train like a pussy and don't get results, then you should blame that on your flared up ovarian situation. What do you think, Alex?
0: Yeah, just keep sitting back and do fives.
1: (laughs) Um, To anybody who doesn't know, that was a near direct quote from one Mark Ripto. On a really fantastic YouTube video that was doing the rounds. I think it was last week, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, from starting strength. Should we get him on? You know, like,
0: should we, should we get him on and just pretend like we agree with him and just troll him the whole time?
1: No. Well, the thing is, like, I actually want to be generous to to Ripto because obviously I don't believe what I just said. By the way, if if the like sexist language and sounding like a dipshit didn't <laughs> didn't give it away. Um I want to be generous to him because first things first, I think actually a huge amount of the way in which the starting strength um, starting strength books sort of describe like the training paradigms of novices through intermediates and talking about balancing stimulus and recovery and adaptation, I think are excellent. That's first things first. And in a practical sense, a lot of his advice is really good. So so like as much as I can make a bit of fun of Mark Ripto for thinking that like weightlifters should just low bar squat and do fives, and a whole bunch of other silly bullshit he said, I actually think that they've contributed a huge amount of really useful stuff to the lifting community. So that's number one. And number two, the thrust of what he was saying, other than it being really macho and stupid, was he was saying sometimes you warm up and weights are intimidating and feel heavy, but objectively your performance is not as bad as you would perceive it to be. And were you to rely purely on the subjective feel you wouldn't push training as hard as you could to make progress. That's what he said. I framed that in a very generous way. Mm. It's a mischaracterization of RPE.
0: But also, like, RPE is not just a subjective tool because... No, that's why I say mm. it's
1: a mischaracterization. You go on.
0: Yeah, because you correlate how it felt with the video that's in front of you and then you extrapolate that out and you use your best guess to choose the next load.
1: Yeah, you actually... you. You use you like use the subjective information after the objective information of bar speed, how it looked on video, how much more could you have ground out, and I think that there is actually benefit to integrating some of that subjective information anyway because training shouldn't feel like death all the time, and I also think that there's like a broad enough window of training that is sufficient to get you stronger that you can integrate that signal from your body saying, "I feel like crap today and train five percent lighter and probably still make progress." In the same way that you can say, wow, I feel really crash hot today and strike when the iron's hot, I think that that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so other than mischaracterizing RPE and sounding like a macho doofus...
0: What's your actual uh, coaching lesson here or do you just wanted to I, about I
1: honestly lesson? just wanted to meme <laughs> on that video. If you haven't seen it, guys, it is about seven minutes and the best thing about it is like he's sitting there and he's like... I think he's got like pretty hectic rosacea. Like he's pretty red in the face and his eyes have like those crazy eyes happening and he's sitting there and he's talking... He's got his like microphone in front of him, and he, honest to God, looks like a cult leader. Is, um,
0: it, is it not just 40 years of trend?
1: Do you reckon Mark Ripto is on Trent? Surely not. Oh, I don't know. No, almost <laughs> certainly not. Um, I, it might be 40 years of a gallon of milk a day. <laughs> yeah, <maybe. laughs> um, but, like, but, you know, he's. Oh, um, I can't remember the name of the family. There's that, there's that cult um, in America that are really disliked um, who have like this father figure cult leader. And he delivers these sermons about how the end of the world is coming and like he's, you know, really homophobic and racist and stuff. Um, not not throwing Mike Ripto in the same boat as him, but the way in which he looked sitting there in front of that microphone just evoked cult leader to me. And, you know, if ever there was someone in the lifting community who maybe had a claim to being a bit of a cult leader, he's certainly in the conversation. So it's worth watching. Just watch it with both eyes very wide open. It's pretty funny. Um, I had a coaching lesson which was about accessories and movement quality. It's a lot more boring than that, Um, which is, um, you know, I don't just look at my accessories or more and more this year, I've stopped looking at my accessories just as a vehicle to like get a certain muscle group more jacked or strengthen a movement pattern, even though broadly that's what we're doing them for. I've also started thinking a little bit more about like which postures does a lifter like perpetually regress to when they're doing, you know, tasks that are demanding a lot of output from them. So for powerlifters, it tends to be really extended backs and stuff like that. And so how can I expose them to lifts that put them in positions contrary to that, which are going to obviously bring up some lagging muscles, but also just restore some variability in how they move and have them feeling better. And oftentimes, that's not a huge difference. So, you know, if I'm wanting to get somebody's hamstrings jacked, I might have done a lying leg curl prior to now. I might have done RDLs prior to now. But when I select the movements, I'm still thinking, well, you know, like if I can get them to do whatever, their lying leg curls and hold themselves in a bit of posterior tilt and, you know, like inflate their upper back with some air before they go, like that might be good for them from just a postural and feeling good perspective. Or it might mean that when I choose a split squat variation, I don't just pick the ones where they can handle the most load. I might pick the ones that get them to drive some internal rotation of their femur or get a slightly more stacked rib cage and pelvis and things like that too. And I think it's, it's been a little bit of nip and tuck around the edges in, a, in accessory exercise selection, but it has meant that I now have a couple of slots on each training day where I'm basically just thinking, what can I do to have this person moving well and feeling good and being healthy for as long as I can during their training? And I think it's been a kind of useful paradigm shift, but I think that initially when I started thinking like that, I ran the risk of going, I'm going to spend too much time doing silly corrective bullshit and not enough time just picking stuff that gets you jacked. So it's been that's been something where I've been sort of playing with twisting that dial over the year and I think it's been mostly good. Cool. <laughs> cool, he says I had some that straight to the keeper.
0: I had some um notes on accessories as well and yeah, for me ahead. it's been well something that I used to do a lot was um wave the intensity of my accessories throughout the block so it'd start slightly easier and push to being slightly hard. I've actually decided recently to keep them the difficulty and the total number of sets. Um, static Throughout the whole block And You know The reason for that Is to just Kind of Wait and see What the Stimulus gets us mm. um, What kind of Adaptation do we Actually get from this Versus like Trying to guess You know What's the correct Stimulus for it um, And then let the Progression come from The main lifts
1: Yeah I mean I th- I think I probably Sit more in the Ladder camp Mostly I almost always Have an intro week In all of my blocks
0: Yeah yeah And that was my Other note there is Except for intro weeks Where I would generally take you know three to five sets off per session mm. um, it's going to be static across the across the block
1: yeah and I think I think sort of melding those two things is like I look at my accessories as thinking what's like what's the sufficient stimulus to get what I want from this person and if the sufficient stimulus is for hypertrophy then the difference between somebody doing three quality sets of leg extensions or five quality sets of leg extensions when they already squat for eight sets a week it's going to be nearly nothing so it probably doesn't matter on that front but it might matter from like a global fatigue perspective and from the perspective of like getting them to actually move in the way that i want them to if i'm getting somebody to you know if i want to ensure that say whatever it is somebody moves with a reasonably stacked pelvis as they get more and more fatigued they're going to regress more and more to movement patterns that resemble the one they're strongest in because that's why they assume it under like high output tasks and so if the quality of the accessory deteriorates just because I've thrown too much stimulus at it, then it's probably not even really doing its job anymore. It's just more fatigue. Mm. Um, so I do it comes think... It becomes
0: junk volume at that point.
1: Yeah. So it's like, well, either I need to choose movements that are even more constrained so that I can get more volume through this body part... Body part? Body part? That's very it New York African. accent. Yeah, I don't know. It was, it was not a word in Australian English anyway. Um, yeah, like either I need to like choose an even more constrained exercise to get the volume through that body part I can't do it (laughs) that (laughs) one one, one was okay that was okay or or we just say okay you know like we're probably not going to get a whole lot more from another set or two so let's just chill and come back and like see if maybe they can just get stronger because like at the end of the day they're still powerlifters so like how tired do you want their quads to be from leg extensions as opposed to squats
0: yeah another thing that I've done um is instead of throwing extra sets, you know, I've kept maybe two sets for leg extensions, for example, with the second set being AMRAP. Yeah. And that allows them to just kind of, they got one set to fill out the RPE and then the second set to just kind of just go and work hard. And, you know, that those two sets takes five minutes, but it's quite a lot of stimulus. And I yeah. think it's a good way to kind of finish off a session.
1: Yeah, I actually, um, I forget who I was talking to this about. It was one of my clients. I also like, the psychological delineation between how I approach main lifts and how I approach accessory work. We've spoken about this. Like, Mm. it's nice to, in your accessory work, be like, I'm going to try really hard and kind of jam out and listen to some music and get a bit of a sweat on and not be too fussed. And I think little challenges that you build in there, like AMRAPs or, you know, a few of my lifters have been doing like little density circuits where they've got like two exercises and a given amount of time to get Mm. as many reps done as they can, stuff like that. Like little things like that that just let you kind of flick the switch from being a power lifter to being somebody who's just in the gym getting jacked is fun.
0: Yeah. And, and often, often for me, I know in my own training, if I have more than three sets of a given accessory, by the third set, I'm bored Yeah, and I want to move on to the next thing. So if you give me a challenge like, you know, two sets to RPA and one set AMRAP, it keeps me engaged. And then mm-hmm. I'm giving my, my, max effort for those three sets and then i can move on and do the same thing for the next thing
1: yeah and i think um what you're talking about there is also something we've spoken about a little bit in our own training um is that like our tolerance for volume generally has probably fallen Mm. and i think that for me i'm realizing that there's only so many exercises that i can really hit hard in a given session yeah because every set, like, I'm just putting out a little bit more work. Not on upper body stuff. I want to be very clear. But on yeah, my own. <laughs> you're putting up less work these days. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes, well, my shoulder's a bit sore. Um, <laughs> but, but but no, like, as in, you just get a little bit tired. And so, again, having that sort of, like, quality first, you know, get what you need to get done, done well mindset, I think, is, is really good. You know? mm. um, yeah, I- and it
0: also feels like less of a burden when you, you know, I still write down each of my sessions on my... Um, in my training book Mm. as i go and like if i write down you know to use the same example leg extension one by one by rp8 one by amrap like that doesn't look daunting whereas if i write five sets of 10 to 15 at rp8 like i'll look at that and go fuck that's gonna take me like 15 minutes i'm gonna be bored yeah like it just you just looking at it it's like okay let's do that and then you hit it hard you hit it well and it's and you move on
1: can I ask, when you write in your little training logbook, mm-hmm. do you write in all capitals there as well, or do you just write your podcast notes in all capitals?
0: I write the exercise in all capitals. Yep. And I write, well, it's mostly it's mostly numbers because it's reps and up years yeah. and stuff. But then I write my notes like normally.
1: Because anybody who isn't in the podcast studio right now, which is everybody, Alex turned up today with a sheet of what looks like fucking hieroglyphs for the podcast. He's hey, got I have good handwriting. It, Will you've got big block letters like you're filling out a fucking immigration form. And, <laughs> and I just, I can't imagine, how long did it take you to write those notes? Because it's two pages. Well, when I,
0: got, when I got about two lines in, I was like, oh fuck, I regret writing all capitals now. <laughs> and then I just stuck with it. But yeah, it took probably twice as long as it needed to.
1: My favorite, and this is how I know that you were never going to be a doctor. My favorite is... <laughs> doctor, you probably knew that within about five seconds of writing. meeting me Will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess hey, i'm alex you're not gonna be a doctor <laughs> no absolutely not if you were a doctor what would and like let's say a specialist what would your specialty be you reckon me yeah um i don't know maybe sports neurologist doctor. you're very like you're interested in concussion sports doctor yeah sports physicians are interesting that would be fun you reckon neurologist to be fun
0: no sports doctor
1: sport yeah I did see a sports physician at one stage um, He His name was Ken Crichton And he, and he had um,
0: Now, neurology would be way too difficult Yeah, it's, it's definitely difficult Brain stuff's so, so difficult
1: Yeah, of course it's difficult But, you know, I trust you No, you don't No, absolutely not Not with my brain Not with the way my brain is as well <laughs> Yeah Well, hey, maybe you can commiserate With all those people Who have diminishing mental function mm. You can say, don't worry me too While you got the scalpel in your hand Um, and diminishing
0: from already a low base
1: yeah (laughs) Yeah, true what about did you have any more coaching lessons or any training lessons i had one more coaching one which was
0: kind of extends on the communication point before it's just asking more asking more questions asking about you know preferences of you know what they want as far as exercise frequency exercise selection fun stuff that we just spoke about to make training a little bit more enjoyable at the end of sessions ways to get in you know, sufficient volume in a way that they find enjoyable and just general stuff like that. Sure.
1: Well, what about training lessons? You start because I'm going to go fill up my water.
0: All right. My first one, and you'll definitely attest to this, Will, is that injuries suck. Word. (laughs) Breach. Um, So I, I was prepping for a meet in July, which I did quite well in except for bench press. And the reason for that was because I had this really strange nerve issue in my arm um, and it made training really, really hard. And if I had known how long um, it was going to take me to rehab, I probably wouldn't have done the comp um, because it only made it worse getting under heavy loads all the time. Um, so that was my first point, is that training with, in- training with injuries suck and if- unless the comp you're doing is like super-duper high priority, it's probably a good idea to just sit it out and get better.
1: What about um, just... For- I always like to have a little practical twist on the talks that we have, um, such as telling people that they can write in lowercase if they want to write two notes, two pages of podcast notes. But oh, in this instance... One and a
0: half, and it's also A5, so it's probably like a Yeah, come to think of it, three quarters you quarters of a page.
1: prepared fuck all for this podcast, didn't you? Um, no, the I was going to say, from a practical perspective, what about like for lifters who are dealing with injuries, is there anything that you found either from like a psychological or physical perspective really helped?
0: Uh, the first thing is don't um, beat your head against the wall by continually doing the things that make it worse.
1: It's another way to get your head injured as well. Yes, it is. Yep, go on.
0: To make nine concussions, ten concussions. <laughs> yep. Um, if it's something that's movement specific that really flares up the injury and it, you know is destroying your quality of life, which it was in my case, stop doing that particular movement. Um, you know, A few weeks off of a movement in the grand scheme of things is nothing and a few weeks of doing it when it hurts is going to take longer for you to come back and recover from so that would be the first thing the second thing would be try and find work workarounds that allow you to get sufficient volume in without any flare-ups so for me it was doing push-ups was like one of the few things i could really do Mm. and i was hitting like 10 sets of push-ups a week to like rp eight eight, to nine because it was pretty much the only upper body i could do for a few weeks um, and you know I definitely lost a bit of size in my upper body but it was definitely better than had I not done the push-ups
1: well it's sort of like if you think about it, the mechanisms by which we get stronger not all of them are technical you know like if you can maintain your muscle size by doing things that are pain-free and the maintenance dose is much less than the growth dose mm-hmm. you're already maintaining a lot of strength capacity you can get a lot of the morphological adaptations beyond that you know connective tissue adaptations shit like that, by just lifting heavy-ish in some respect. Mm. So you might not be able to bench press all the time, but if you can do a machine chest press or some dumbbell pressing or some weighted push-ups, you're still going to get some of those connective tissue adaptations, which is good. Um, so from like a preservation perspective, you're already getting a bunch of them. you get some neural adaptations, just not all the technical ones. So you leave a bit on the side, but you preserve a lot. But then like the optimistic perspective is to say, well, like if I bench press all the time and it fucks my shoulders to do it, you might actually get net benefit by doing some other things for a while if it restores some movement that has actually been limiting your bench press or lets you actually build a bit more muscle and a bit more of those general strength qualities and sort of put the fire out pain-wise before reintroducing the bench. You might actually raise your ceiling. So not being so stubborn as to refuse to remove a movement could actually make you better. Mm. I said too many negatives in that sentence. But people will pass through it eventually, I think.
0: Three negatives is a negative, right?
1: I'm not sure. Four is a positive. (sighs) Shit. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I think of just negatives as turning 180 degrees. So when I'm not sure how to orient myself after a sentence, I literally just do 180 degrees for every negative that I heard. And if I'm still facing the person, it was a positive. If
0: I'm you facing away from up them. i end really dizzy.
1: Very dizzy. Um, that was actually one of the fun MISC memes. It was like the shittest recurring joke on the MISC was people would tell stories about awkward encounters with girls. And it always ended with like, you know, and then she 360'd and walked out of there. And people who were new to the MISC were always like, if they did a 360, they'd be walking towards you and try and correct them. And it was just so funny to me because it was like the lowest hanging fruit. Humor-wise, but just just so, so funny. So, anyway, I think I 540'd in that sentence. So, it was a negative. Nice. All right. Um, so, that was a training lesson. Got any? Yeah, I got a couple. Um, one, which we spoke about in our last episode, was that I, I think I quite like having quite pulse-like loading in my training. Because um, I have had some periods this year where I've had, like, reasonably flat training stimulus. And it's fine. But I do tend to stagnate a little bit quicker. And I also think that having more pulse-like loading, so having like little waves in my volume, but certainly bigger waves in my RPEs, it helps me set goals for on a three or four weekly basis, build some momentum up to them, hit them and anticipate that fatigue. And I think maybe partly because I just don't dissipate fatigue as quickly as I used to, or maybe I accrue more fatigue per session, I'm not sure. Um, I just seem to respond really well to that. And so bearing that in mind for myself has also helped me look at a couple of my clients where I've thought this person probably just needs more peaks and troughs in their training to do well um, and not so much flat loading, it doesn't mean that everybody's like that, I've got a few people who you can just kill them and then give them a day off and then kill them and give them a day off over and over and it's fine Mm. but I think pulse-like loading suits me well because I can sustain in the short term very high outputs um, and I can actually benefit from reasonably low levels of training but neither of them chronically seems to do me very well
0: yeah that's um something that i've definitely found with myself as well um and i think a lot of it for me is mental Mm. like i can kind of train in that productive zone and you know never really push prs and still improve but i think if i you know start things quite conservative and build into something that's quite difficult it gives me a bit of motivation to like bush each week because i know that that pr is coming
1: yeah and it's also nice to build confidence like when things just move really well early in a training cycle like i think people criticize training that starts low rpe and ends high rpe with like with a level of validity by saying that like those early weeks aren't doing shit for you um but i don't really think that's true i think like the more I think about it and the more I read about it, the more I think that the productive window of training is reasonably wide. And the money zone, like the absolute best results zone, might be a little bit narrower. But I still do really think people can benefit from training where training's really RPE five or six for a little bit. And people do benefit from training that's RPE nine and 10, but it's rarely as sustainable. And so I, I think sort of traversing that ground can be fine. And for me, it just seems to be preferable. I. I enjoy it. Some other people really enjoy it. And so knowing that is something like I kind of want to integrate in my training. I'm starting to try and set goals on a three or four weekly basis where I know I can start sub-maximal and and reach them in three or four weeks. And I think it's helping.
0: Yeah. So for for me, it's like two quite easy weeks, two moderate weeks, two quite hard weeks, and then start again. And like, you know, that sort of six week block is really good timing for me. And, you know, that kind of goes into my next training, um, training discovery was that, i really enjoy doing the main lifts all the time and like you know if we're thinking about that six week um block length although the main lifts would stay in like ideally for me the main lifts would stay in all the time those accessories for me i like them to change roughly every six weeks like every four to six weeks i get very bored and i like to do something new yeah so that's something that's kind of just i always thought was the case but I've kind of been told, oh, no, I just keep, you know, keep doing the same accessories. Whereas, like, I don't think it really matters that much. And I think if you put the effort in, um, that's more important than what the exercise selection is.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's a different thing to change accessories on a weekly basis and mm. never really like have a chance to progress. I think six weeks in in exercises, particularly ones where like there's only so many avenues for progression. Before you substitute them out Again, provided everything's falling in that window of like It's hard enough and it's enough work to be productive I think six weeks is plenty long before you substitute exercise out And if you're feeling really good And you feel like you can progress for longer You can just keep it
0: Yeah, and that's the other thing is like If I get to that end of the six weeks You know, I have that chat with JP You know, hey, I'm really enjoying this exercise slot This exercise slot And this one, I'd like to do them again And then we can change the other ones Yeah And you know, it gives you that flexibility to kind of give and take you know, what you're enjoying and take away what you're not.
1: Yeah. And something I've found as well, if we zoom all the way back to what I was saying about accessory work um, and like the movement quality perspective, you know, like after six weeks, if you're you're really emphasizing one or two things, you should kind of be seeing that somebody feels a little bit better and moves a little bit better at that point. At which point you might not need the same restrictions on movement or you might not, you know, you might not need to choose things for the exact same reason or or they might just be ready to progress to something else that gives them a similar challenge but just has a point of distinction and I think if... How do I express this well? If, If the drawback in inverted commas of doing too much powerlifting training is that you become very constrained in your movement then by extension the drawback of having all your accessories always stay exactly the same is that you're also quite constrained there whereas if after six weeks you say we're going to get something that, you know, broadly speaking, still trains you back, but just asks you to do it slightly differently, it's probably good. Like, it's it's probably not bad, and it might just be enough variation to have you feel good, in which case, good,
0: Yeah. you know? Yeah, and and one of the things that was kind of frustrating me before we went into lockdown with the two gyms that I trained at is the lack of machines, so the lack of variety to choose from those accessories. And then we went into lockdown, and it was like, okay, you got a barbell and a rack, and, you know, I was very, very lucky to have the amount of equipment that I did have And it kind of opened my eyes up to how much was actually possible with very little equipment. Yeah. And now that we've gone back into a normal gym, it's like I got so many options at my disposal that I didn't even consider before.
1: Yeah, 100%. Um, My next training one, um, I kind of wrote this a bit flippantly, but I do think it's true, is like I've kind of been realizing this year how much my squat benefits from back strength, but my deadlift benefits from leg strength. You might think that the opposite would be true for people. What do you think about that?
0: Well, the way that you squat is very backy. Yeah,
1: it's because my legs suck.
0: But the way that you do is very latty and leggy.
1: Yeah, well, there you go. Um, here's kind of what I mean. You're right that the way I squat is a bit backy, but my strongest squat position is one in which I'm a little bit bent over in the hole and... My best squats are the ones in which I'm able to sustain my torso position and keep my chest rising as I come out of the hole. And I realized this year that when I feel really locked in and tight through my back, and actually when I do some direct back training, I'm just able to fight through those positions better.
0: Do you mean like rowing training or do you mean like like lower back? Yeah, like back extensions and good mornings and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, more like back extensions and so on. Um, It really just helps me fight through those positions. I think at my heaviest squats, like my legs are actually reasonably strong. It's not that big of a deal, but certainly when my back strength is good, my ability to grind and hold those positions is better. Um, And it's certainly something where I've noticed the difference.
0: I think for you, like if you look at the angle of your torso in the deadlift and in the squat, they're actually quite similar. Mm. And, you know, what that means is your knees are only slightly flexed. Yeah. Which, because your quads are weaker than your hips, that's the position that your body puts itself in. So it kind of makes sense. Yeah, It's like you use your quads enough to stay in that position on deadlift that you don't go like fully stiff leggy, but you also use your back enough on squats that that's also the right position for you.
1: Well, what you said about deadlifts is certainly the case for me, but what I've realized recently, because I've had a few up and down weeks of deadlifting is the weeks when I deadlift really well are the weeks where I feel like I'm getting a lot of leg drive. And that comes from a lot of things. Like, I've got to take the slack out of the bar well. I've got to brace effectively and stuff. Um, but when my le- when my legs feel strong and when I feel like I get a really good push off the floor, I definitely deadlift better because, again, the part of the deadlift for me that is hardest is sort of that mid-sheet, uh, mid-sheet, mid-shin to knee range. Um and so again, just getting a really good push off the floor helps me hit that point with a bit more momentum and in a better position and then I'm able to grind through it. Um and,
0: and- also your deadlift technique is quite good, which you know means that you are using your legs and you know, not your mid back and erectors.
1: Sure. As uh, much. Yeah, I think that's true too. And so anyway, just, just as I've trained this year, I've started thinking a little bit more about those two those two components of those lifts and whether it has any practical training implications i'm not sure but it's just something that i'm sort of keeping an eye on now when i go into train i'm like you know oh how's my back feeling today gives me some idea of how i'm going to squat and like you know how's that to my legs today am i using my legs well when i'm warming up to deadlift yes or no yes i'll probably deadlift okay no Uh, okay you know yeah but i I think it
0: also gives you an element of um, queuing that can help you with your performance as well
1: yeah for sure well now when I deadlift one of the big things I'm thinking about is
0: pushing the floor. Better, yeah,
1: better push off the floor mm. um, you know, otherwise the bar doesn't go up mm. so yeah, yeah that was it
0: well my last training one was kind of just centered around solidifying the belief in my head about how much squat volume I can manage versus how much deadlift volume I can manage and you know even more recently in the last few months I've been squatting three times a week and deadlifting just once Yep. And I feel so much more cooked after that one deadlift session that I do after any of the squat sessions. Um, and it kind of goes back to my roots of training. Um, you know, even five or six years ago when I was with Hanny and I was deadlifting very low volume and squatting multiple times per week. And whether that's, whether I'm, good at it now because that's what i've done in the past i'm not sure whether it's just that's just the way that i am but i think it's more centered centered around the way that i deadlift is very fatiguing
1: well I was going to say like one of the sort of broad ways i conceptualize training is just to do with fatigue dynamics like you impose a stimulus hopefully a productive amount of stimulus one where you get adaptation and then you need to give enough time off from that stimulus to dissipate enough fatigue to give that stimulus again and allow for some adaptation in that time. And broadly within training, we're managing some competing stimuli. Your squat and deadlift have some level of overlap and interference, right? And if for you, deadlifting, the productive stimulus doesn't need to be very high and the fatigue cost is reasonably high, then it's going to make sense to do a little bit less, a little bit less often, particularly when it is going to impact, say, your squat, which is less fatiguing and might benefit from slightly more work, right? Mm. Um, that seems really intuitive, but I think that like people sort of people's thinking about like how they should plan their training always regresses towards this like this sort of research centric or, or mechanism centric view of training where it's like, well, like only takes a few days to recover from training mostly, so why shouldn't you just train with very high frequency all the time? And sometimes the answer is because it's just too stressful and I don't recover very well when I do that much then and it's a trade-off and the trade-offs and the trade-offs matter. So I'm just going to deadlift once and it suits me fine and it helps me balance fatigue better. You know? Mm -hmm. That's it.
0: I agree. Um, All right. Misk. Misk. Life life things.
1: Okay. I got two huge bits of life wisdom. (laughs) One, this one is very um, like quarantine centric or it's a discovery that I think a lot of people might have made in quarantine. Dual screens are so much better. If you work from home or you work on a computer anywhere,
0: Are you really that addicted to porn, Will?
1: (laughs) It's good for that. (laughs) But... I was just expecting you to say yes. um, No. Having two screens is so good. And particularly as a powerlifting coach. Like when I have a client's videos open on one screen and their spreadsheet open on another screen and I'm looking at the videos and I'm looking at their spreadsheet and I see their RPEs and I see their lifting and I see their notes and I know the weights. It's just oh i don't know it's just the nicest feeling and you know when you're writing a program and you can have the past program open right next to it with the notes and the rpe's and stuff yeah it's just it's so good if you don't have a dual screen setup you got to get one that's my number one
0: i should probably do that honestly man i actually do have a spare tv which could definitely second as a monitor in my car
1: thing is i think
0: i don't have a desk
1: I set up my whole... Doesn't Chrissy have that cool standing desk now?
0: Yeah, but I don't use it.
1: Maybe use it. Um, get a second screen. You know what you could do is actually have a second screen there that you just unplug and whoever's using it could just... Because you both have Macs, right? Mm. Yeah, so you could basically just have the setup ready, plug it in or whatever. Yeah, it's actually a good idea. Because, um, yeah, I actually bought my whole new PC setup right before we went into lockdown. And I think my... Like, I have a good monitor and a bad monitor. Like, quote-unquote, bad is still fine. My bad monitor was only a couple of hundred dollars, man. So it's like, you could probably buy like a good second monitor for two or three hundred dollars. It'd be fine. Mm. Yeah, so that was my number one.
0: My first MISC one was super lame, but it was, I don't need much to be happy.
1: Lame. Go on.
0: Well, like particularly when we went to lockdown, it was, you know, we didn't have access to seeing each other a lot. Sport was all canceled. Um, But, you know, the things that, kept me ticking along was like obviously having a job and having people to communicate with um on a regular um training and then when sport did begin again that was like the biggest godsend and it really i mean that was my next one was that life without sport sucks (laughs) man like
1: i agree it's just so funny we're such simple creatures when the
0: when the nba was cancelled yeah um i think it was march March the 9th I think um sure like a couple of weeks before we went into lockdown we weren't even in lockdown yet but they'd cancelled it over there yeah it was terrible and then we had maybe two weeks of rugby league before rugby league was cancelled and there was nothing else on and I was so bored on the weekends
1: yeah. yeah the weeks felt long I think one of the nice things about life is like that rhythm of you know you work Monday to Friday or whatever you do And then you have that pulse of weekend. And on the weekend, you have some social time. You don't think much about work. You have contrast in the rest of your life. You watch some sport, whatever. And then you go back to the work week. And it just feels like the two balance each other out a little bit, right? Mm. Whereas when your work week happens all at home, so you don't have that change in environment. You don't have a change in the people that you see because you're working from home.
0: Training's in the garage.
1: Training's in the garage. There's no sport. Things just feel flat. It's like your life becomes monotone.
0: Yeah, every day was just a Monday. Yeah. Or actually, no, every day was a Tuesday. Tuesday is the worst day of the week.
1: I like Monday because it sounds like mundane.
0: It sounds right.
1: Yeah. Um, No, okay, that was was good wisdom. My second wisdom, or do you have more?
0: No, no, you go. I got one more. My
1: second one, and this is the hill that I will die on slow cookers are fucking sick and every single person should get one from the government I don't know about this <laughs> I don't oh know
0: God. everyone should get one from, Wait, the government. <laughs> mate, from the government
1: if we need a coronavirus stimulus package everybody gets a breville fast slow cooker they're fucking sick man that's what I've got
0: yeah your one's good ours is a little less complicated but
1: yeah I mean it's not complicated that's why I say they're so good like you could be brain dead and cook good meals in a slow cooker because it's like guaranteed going to be tender. You cook for so long that it will never go wrong. And like just the things that you cook in there, you can't overcook. Like very often I'll slow cook things for eight hours and then I'll juice it up with like another hour of pressure cooking just for no reason, just because it's already in there and like whatever. So that's a lot of cooking. Well, but it just comes out fucking great.
0: It seems like everyone who has either a slow cooker or an air fryer thinks that they're the two greatest things in the world. And I've never used either. I've literally never used our slow cooker and we don't have an air fryer. So, like, couldn't tell you. Well, probably should.
1: Let me tell you. That slow cooker. Once a week, I buy a kilo to a kilo and a half of some meat. Sometimes I buy a meal base. Sometimes I don't even do that. Just buy some random sauces and shit. You brown the meat, dice some onions and shit, throw it in the slow cooker, put some sauce in there. As long as there's enough liquid, things don't get dry six or eight hours it's got presets you just leave it it does its own thing come back voila awesome every time it's like a week's worth of food it's sick and they're not that expensive and like i said you don't have to be a good cook that's the best thing is well, okay straight. i'm just
0: gonna shit on you for a second will yeah every time you have food yeah you literally have like some sort of meat dish which obviously You've just told everyone it comes from the slow cooker. Yeah, two pieces of toast and a handful of spinach.
1: <laughs> the handful of spinach is so crucial. Do you know how many people write to me on Instagram saying the fucking spinach every time? You know why? Greens are healthy. Don't you have veggies in the slow cooker? Sometimes you can have more than one veggie, dude. Okay, this is my vegetable. Veggies suck. Bear in mind that I'm a dietitian. This is my. <laughs> <laughs> This This is my vegetable setup This is my vegetable setup I have like a couple of kilos of McCain's frozen veggies All the time I buy a bag of greens once or twice a week And a bag of carrots And then I'll buy one or two things I'm going to roast And anything that goes in the slow cooker But basically my life is Greens on the side of everything I eat Frozen veggies here and there Like three times a week And then just eating carrots randomly When I'm walking around my house And that's health that's health and it's easy. And you, health
0: is the first wealth. You like long dick shaped objects in your mouth, don't you will?
1: You know, I was actually one, huh? Two, I was actually thinking of making an Instagram like joke story at one stage about how I'm on the phallic diet and just having sausages with a side of eggplants and carrots and a banana. And just like everything that That's looks from like a dick, horrible bosses. Is it?
0: Have you seen horrible bosses? No, I haven't. Jennifer Aniston's like in the um, window, and one of the dudes is looking at her, and she's eating like dick-shaped objects. Just eats like, and like over a popsicle, a, like a popsicle. Yeah, a, just a hot dog on its own, and um, what's the other thing? Maybe a carrot.
1: Right, I don't know. I haven't seen it, but it annoys me. A zucchini, cucumber. It annoys me that that joke has been done but I'm not surprised it's been done it's a pretty low quality joke but I I was thinking of doing it well now that I know that it's a joke I'm stealing from someone else I won't do it that's like I put a joke up the other day um, which was a a picture of my smoke alarm saying that like this device informs my neighbours when I cook sausages turns out somebody has made exactly that same joke on Instagram and I follow them it had just subconsciously gone into my head so I'm a joke plagiarist I don't even know so I had to remove it all right, what's your last life? Well, instead? my last
0: one kind of comes back from my first one, which is that I don't need a lot to be happy.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, me and a few of the boys started a beer tasting group.
1: Shout it out. Come on, tell everybody where they came So can
0: everyone, go follow us on uh, Instagram, Bangarang Beer Boys.
1: Yeah, it's good if you like beer.
0: If you like beer. I don't like beer. We do reviews. Yep, go on. Um, anyway, during COVID, we hadn't really hung out. We hadn't seen each other. So we decided we'll do a beer tasting on Zoom. And we did that and we've all been really getting into beers on our own. And I love beer. That's literally it.
1: I love beer. That was what I wrote. You are becoming such an adult. I mean, like you've liked beer for a long time, but you used to like slamming beers.
0: I still like slamming beers.
1: Yeah, but now you like beer in the way that like my dad likes beer.
0: I had a beer last night, just one beer with dinner. It was so good.
1: See, if I have just one of the mercury ciders in my fridge tonight, one will turn into 12. And I'll just be rampaging around the streets of Bronte, just coward punching people.
0: I say do it without the coward punching. <laughs>
1: yeah, we don't advocate for coward punching here. Um, the the thing about starting an Instagram, the beer rating Instagram kind of reminds me of, doesn't remind me of, it made me think of like this thing that I was calling COVID creativity, which is just that, you know how when you're bored, your mind often seems to expand to fill the space in it. And you just, you end up inventing things because you know necessity is the mother of invention, and boredom's also the mother of invention. But like, you think of dumb things, you think of dumb jokes. You like compulsively start to pick up and learn skills. Like you always try and find ways to fill the time. And something I found like when I was traveling was my my like intellectual curiosity was always higher because I, I mean one when you're traveling you feel open to experience, and two like there's just less shit going on in your head. And so I guess like. In some ways, this year, having had so many like disruptions and maybe so much time off of the noise of life, also makes you realise that like you can do a lot more with your brain when it's not so inundated with just bullshit. What do you reckon about that?
0: Yeah, I actually really agree with that. Remember when um Doug and I were in Thailand? And this is 2014. This is a long time ago.
1: I don't remember.
0: I said I, I said I remember. Right, go on. I that was when I first started really like thinking a lot about training programs and writing training programs and i was using the extra energy in my mind to like you know like i was writing like a power program that i was gonna do when i get home and so That's on, what i was really five, excited five for.
1: five Ooga booga.
0: <laughs> it was definitely not that but yeah right.
1: yeah well no i definitely think that to some degree that's true all right that's pretty well a wrap for this week do you remember i had a do you remember for you let's take a I've very quick one. break because okay. i need to remember mine and we'll play do you remember Right, Weekly Weights, episode 119. We're playing Do You Remember? The segment where we ask the other person if they remember. And my one, Alex, Nishaz, do you remember the cookie shop in Uzbekistan? No. Really? Okay, you will remember as I talk through it. So, you, Doug, myself, and Jules went to that market in Tashkent and we walked around and there was people selling swords and shit and obviously we couldn't take them back to Australia Um, we had some lunch and then on the way back to what you're remembering something I'm gonna pause you there do
0: you remember that lunch we got yeah it was
1: filthily greasy it was so good it was it was really cold we
0: went in and we they didn't speak any English we were like in this village yeah and like in this market in the middle of this village like the most non-Australia ever <laughs> true and we're like really hungry was this before we could comp- it was definitely before we competed
1: no it was after definitely because we competed i competed the day after we arrived and we arrived at midnight one night and then i think you guys would have been a day or two later
0: okay either way um and we were like we're starving so i think it was jules went up and asked or-
1: yeah i'm certain that jules was like elected in charge jules- of getting us lunch
0: jules went up and asked I think you she know, just pointed whether at we can get lunch through. yeah yeah there was this big pot of stew I think it was outside yeah. like in this like massive like cauldron looking thing yeah and she's like pointing at it can we get some and they're like okay they sit us down inside and it was like freezing and then inside was alright and then we just sit there and they just start bringing food out like this that Uzbek bread yeah oh man unbelievable Uzbek bread it was like bread. Uzbek bread with this like beef stew or like probably wasn't beef it was probably like goat or something
1: Whatever it was, unbelievable. It was quite greasy. It was that sort of like grisly, little bit fatty meat that is just like so warming and hearty. And it was so cold. like, And the cold there is very bitter because it feels like quite dry cold. Mm. Um, anyway, that was sick. On the way back from that, we we're already quite full. Um, and we we wanted to get snacks for the hotel, right? And we walked into this place. The guy stopped us at like a little <sighs> plaza. Now you're remembering? Yeah. We walked into this place and it was like a greengrocer setup, right? Like, kind of had aisles and those little sort of like um, those little like containerlets with like little spady things and bags and stuff. And you basically just f- like all of them were just filled with different types of cookies and lollies and shit. And you basically just walk along with a bag that you just fill up, and there'd be like assorted the equivalent of like Arnott's biscuits, and then just some random like fudge brownies and random cookies and shit like that. And the place was stacked, like it was really big. And we just all filled up bags with something like a kilo and a half of cookies. Do you remember now, Alex? Yeah. Yeah. It was absurd. It was absolutely wild. I feel like I went reasonably conservative and I think Doug had like two and a half times as much cookies as me.
0: (laughs) Doug had more cookies than anyone (laughs) by a long shot.
1: And all we did was get cookies and then bought some chalky milk. And just smashed a stupid amount of cookies over the next day.
0: the best part was that we got to the counter and all of our cookies between four of us were like two bucks.
1: Yeah. It was was like absurdly cheap. (laughs) Like, say one thing for that country, shit doesn't cost much.
0: And when we got there, we had all this US cash. That's right. And um, the guy- It was the the bellboy at the hotel. name was Sammy. The bellboy at the hotel, Sammy. I still have him on Facebook. Me too. Yeah. he was a legend, and he could get us like a better rate than they would, than you could get down the road. Yeah, at the, at bank.
1: the airport, it was I think twenty four hundred of the US things. Um, sorry, of the it was Becky things for a US dollar, and he offered you something like seven thousand. They were so just it it was Becky dollars. Small, what's that? I'm
0: pretty sure they were just called it, it was, Bec, it was dollars. I am pretty sure.
1: Maybe. Um. But point is, it wasn't a small difference. It was literally three times as much money.
0: Anyway, we give him like
1: it was about seven hundred US it was dollars
0: like between the four of us, like eight hundred bucks. I think it was actually. I think it might have been more.
1: Well, I can tell you how much he gave us back.
0: Anyway, we got like literally fat stacks.
1: Three million. It was like fat stacks. He we came got- with a bag. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it was absurd. And then we would go like out with our wallet full of money and we would just have it in like a separate... Like would not even fit in the wallet. It'd be like in a separate rubber band yeah, outside of our wallet. <laughs> we
1: couldn't fit all of our money in the safe in our room. So we had to just... Leave it out because there was nothing you could do about it. And somebody was nominated to carry our cash from the room each day because Doug and I shared because it was such a fucking fat wad. And the dumbest thing is that their their denominations for notes go down to like one, but like we said, there's like seven thousand of them in a US dollar. So when you go to buy like a kebab down the road, it'll be like thirteen thousand of these. It was Becky dollars, and you're giving this dude like stacks that have got like ones and fives and tens and they've got a money counter that they have to put it through just to figure out how much you give them. So it's like, it's a real process to pay for lunch. It was really mm. funny.
0: It, it reminds you of the stories you hear from, from Germany when they had the like hyperinflation yeah. where they were um, putting cash on their walls as wallpaper because it was cheaper than actual wallpaper.
1: Yeah, it's fucked. I think, um trying to remember. There's, I think there was... Zimbabwe had the really bad hyperinflation as well. And I understand why it sort of erodes your confidence in buying anything, right? Because like the mo- like the money you spend today is worth nothing tomorrow. And so the, the things that you buy today that are a cost to you today are also worth nothing tomorrow. It's weird. Mm. Um, anyway, so that was my one. Did you remember the cookie store? Turns out eventually you did. I did.
0: Okay, my do you remember, my do you remember is way more of a throwback. Yeah. I'm talking primary school. Do you remember Bull Rush?
1: Firstly, I peaked in primary school Secondly, of course I remember Bullrush But did you play normal Bullrush or tackle Bullrush?
0: Well, in primary school, normal Bullrush Yeah And then when I got to Redlands, it depended whether the girls would play or not Right So if the girls would play, we would not do tackle Bullrush Of course And yeah And it also depended if we were on the asphalt or on the grass yeah, right. Important distinction.
1: Yeah, yeah. you don't want to tackle Rush on the grass. So to people who don't know Bull Rush, which is amazing, you should check out the official Ratings Boys Instagram page where we broke down childhood games, one of which was Bull Rush, including diagrams. But basically, you run from one marked area, usually a fence in a schoolyard, to the other marked area. Again, the other fence, usually in a schoolyard. And somebody who is in is in the middle. And if they tip you on the way through, you then join them being in. And so the person who wins the game is the last person tagged who is running from side to side. So the difficulty of getting through goes up. We used to play at Shaw, just name dropping my school. We used to play... Probably don't name drop that. Yeah, it's pretty embarrassing. Um, We used to to play um, Tackle Bull Rush sometimes, but the preferred one was Trip Bull Rush right and trip bull rush was pretty dodgy so people would run past you and you'd literally just throw a leg out and they'd stack it really hard that's grubby and a kid in my year i'm pretty sure it was jack burton um at one stage was running past somebody and they tripped him and we had like we we played on this slope that was all grassy but then there was like a dirt driveway that crossed that slope in the school at the time and he got tripped just above the dirt driveway And underneath the dirt of the driveway had been put some, like, matting to support it. And it was that plastic matting that's got pock marks in it where it's kind of jagged around the little pock marks in the circles. Um, I don't know if anybody knows what I'm talking about. It's It's like about an inch thick and there's these circles in it that are about an inch in diameter. And so the rim of each circle is basically just a raised plastic bit. So it was essentially like a sharp plastic thing that was just protruding from from the grass and he cut himself and needed to go to hospital and get stitches and stuff and after that they really cracked down on Trip Bull Rush so we had to go back to just boring tip
0: Tip Bull, uh, trip bull Rush is a, that's a terrible idea Tackle Bull Rush is safer
1: yeah but we were 10 like come on you know like you're not thinking about safety or what ACLs ha, what
0: habits are you teaching there sure will what what habits are you teaching there
1: <laughs> certainly not good ones if the news recently is anything to go by Um, but yeah I do remember Bull Rush that is a great game and on official ratings, boys, we spoke about it. I actually think that tackle bull rush is the best game because it's a real equalizer because the problem with all variations of tip, right, is that the big kids are penalized enormously because you're less agile. You
0: say right? that as a as a, prior, full a big kid. Kid, prior big kid.
1: Yeah, but tackle bull rush, you there's more strategies open to you that you can play viably with. So like if you're really evasive and quick, you're not going to get tackled. But if you're a big unit, you just bounce people and you're also not going to get tackled. So it becomes like you can play to your own strengths and likewise, like being the big kid when you're in and tackle bull rush can be good because people will want to run away from you because they know that you'll be able to take them down if they hit you. So you can partner up with somebody else who then hits the person who tries to get away with you. Like it's, it just opens up a world of tactical possibilities. So anyway, bull rush, yes, I remember it. Great, great game.
0: Great game.
1: <laughs> All right. I, th- I feel like that's pretty much it for the week. Do you have anything to add? I don't. Um, Well, in that case, I'm Will at dot 2 I'm
0: Alex, Alex Hayes underscore process.
1: We we have an episode coming up. Is it next week? With Jules? Yeah.
0: No, the week after.
1: Okay. Well, there might be something else next week, but our next episode with a guest that we've teed up is with Julia. I can't say her surname. Liang? Liang. Is it Liang? Yeah. Silent H. Physiotherapist. And she's going to talk to us about pelvic floors and powerlifting. I think it should be really interesting. So that's coming up, um, but meanwhile, we might do something else next week. No one knows. So peace. Peace.